Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Criminalia, where we're exploring the intersection of history and true crime. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Maria Tremarki. In this season, we have been talking about lady poisoners, and we still are. And in today's episode, we're going to look at the life of a young woman named Sarah Chesham. You may also sometimes hear that pronounced as Chesham. And she went on trial more than once after continued accusations that she didn't just use arsenic to poison the rats in her house. So Sarah, who was born Sarah Parker, was 19 and pregnant with her first child when she married Richard Chesham, a 21-year-old farmer, in the summer of 1828. They named their firstborn daughter Harriet, and the next 10 years, they went on to have five more children who were all boys. Philip was born in 1830, John in 1832, Joseph in 1834, James in 1837, and finally George in 1839. They lived in Clavering, a small rural village in northwest Essex. And we mean very small. In 1841, there were barely more than a thousand people living in the village, and most of the population was under the age of 20. Sarah and Richard eked out really a meager living. Sarah, and possibly Richard as well, was illiterate. There was little food and little work, and most people farmed just to get by. Right, and not even always on their own farms. Sometimes they would work for farmers. They were that poor. Um, in January of 1845, two of their boys, Joseph, who at that time would have been about 10, and James, who was probably about eight, both came down with severe stomach pains and vomiting. And they were seen by their local doctor, yet they still both passed away. Both, it was believed, had died of cholera. They were buried together in the same coffin, most stories report, and they were buried in their local churchyard. This is, of course, incredibly tragic, but it was also not really out of character with the times. Cholera was a very common bacterial disease at this point in England's history, and it was easily spread through contaminated water. 
In general, this was a time when people were unaware of the ways in which diseases spread. Medicine was not really very sophisticated yet. And because of poor sanitation and poor diet and nutrition, as well as dangerous working conditions, the overall British population at this time was actually pretty unhealthy. Life expectancy was pretty low, and the fact that Sarah and her husband both lived into their 40s is kind of remarkable. And if you were a baby at this time, things were pretty grim for you, too. As many as three out of 20 babies didn't live beyond their first birthday. So the death of the two boys was considered a family tragedy, and there was no suspicion at the time against Sarah or her husband, at least not by the authorities. The small-town gossip mill was beginning to run, though. The trouble all started during the summer of 1846, about a year after the boys died, when another young woman in town, her name was Lydia Taylor, um, who may or may not have been the ex-girlfriend of Sarah's husband, Richard, began accusing Sarah of poisoning her infant son. That baby, named Solomon Taylor, was healthy when he was born, but his good health began to deteriorate rapidly in late June that year, his mother reported. Sarah had visited Lydia and her son three times, and Lydia was certain that her son's death was linked to the gifts of rice pudding and apple turnovers that Sarah had brought along. Lydia reportedly also told authorities she was certain she saw a white, slimy substance on her son's lips before he became ill. Sarah, she continued, insisted that that was just sugar from the desserts. But because Solomon died shortly after eating Sarah's food, Lydia suspected her of murder. Okay, two questions. Should a baby be eating those things? (laughs) Right? For a one-year... Right, like your digestive system is still forming, but absolutely have a spoonful of rice pudding. I guess that's that's the more likely of the two to be digestible. It's not not my place to judge what she fed her son. (laughs) Right, less than a year old. That's really young to be eating those... Any kind of rich dessert. Right. Just It just seems weird to me. Again, I'm not a parent. So any parent that has fed your child these things, please don't think I'm judging you. My understanding is just that babies should not be eating food that rich. Uh, But this whole accusation kicked off a series of events, none of which were good for Sarah. In August of that year, based on Lydia's story as evidence, Sarah was investigated by local authorities, who decided that there was enough in Lydia's report to move forward. So because of the rumblings of Sarah's guilt around town, it was at this time, too, that the magistrate requested the bodies of her two sons be exhumed. The remains were examined by local authorities and a local doctor who sent the stomach contents of each child to London for analysis. So while we're pondering that, (laughs) it makes me want to take a little bit of a break. And when we return, we're going to talk about how Sarah went on trial for the deaths of three boys. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But 
That also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past, and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just arrived swim, cover ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made to be seen, very sexy push up bra from the Very Sexy Collection in on trend hues like black shine, green, and citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing 
mixing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's get back into how Sarah stood trial for the poisonings of three children, two of her own. The infant Solomon Taylor's body was tested for arsenic, but none was found. The bodies of Sarah's own children, Joseph and James, were also tested, and the outcome in those tests was not so good. Expert and forensic scientist Dr. Alfred Swain Taylor, no relation to Lydia and Solomon Taylor, told the court that he had found sufficient arsenic in both James and Joseph's stomachs to have proved fatal. So Alfred Swain Taylor's work in this case is actually a really big deal because he himself was a big deal during this time in England, um, specifically for his work in the very early days of toxicology. So toxicologists are experts on poison and poisoning, and they come up a lot, as you can tell, in our episodes. So Taylor had become the go-to expert witness for coroners in this country. He appeared at trials and in newspaper articles so often that he became a minor celebrity himself. Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle both used him for inspiration in their writing, and today he's considered the father of British forensic medicine. And Dr. Taylor testified that he had found yellow arsenic in the boys' stomachs, which apparently meant, he explained, that they had ingested white arsenic while they were still alive. The sulfur released by the body, he said, was what turned it yellow. So Taylor may have been good at his job for the time, <laughs> uh, but this is not exactly the kind of testing you would get from a modern-day toxicologist. There's a little bit of guesswork involved. Right. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> sure that it must have been pretty amazing if you were in the courtroom and you had your, your witness you know, pulling out all of this scientific fact about arsenic. Yeah, but there was no reason to think he was wrong. <laughs> you know? So based on his evidence, it was decided then that Sarah should be arrested and put on trial. Actually, let's talk about those trials for just a minute, because Sarah was put on trial three times in something like two days or a day and a half. It was really compressed, but there were three trials, one each for each victim. While the evidence seemed clear to the court that her two sons had died of arsenic poisoning, there was no way to prove how the boys had ingested the arsenic to begin with. The jury deliberated quickly in both cases, and Sarah was acquitted of the charges that she poisoned her son. Despite the findings of the court, locals still believed that Sarah did, in fact, poison her sons and that she did so to collect life insurance money. In 19th century England, there were such things as burial clubs, which were societies that had sprung up to help poor working class families give their deceased family members a proper funeral. So these clubs worked like this. You paid into an association, and your weekly payments would be used to cover the funeral expenses of your deceased loved ones when the time came. Parents were known to cover sick children under several plans, if they could afford it, so that they would get a good payout. So then there was the third trial. This one was for the poisoning of Solomon Taylor. 
And if you remember, there was no trace of arsenic found in Solomon's body. So the prosecution withdrew that case, too. And Sarah was cleared of these charges as well. And then for a few years, things seemed to go pretty quietly. But when Richard passed away at the age of 43 after a long illness, the rumor mill sprung right back into action. Having been previously accused of poisoning Lydia Taylor's baby, as well as her own two sons, the villagers were convinced, like with all caps convinced, even years later, and after Sarah had been found legally innocent, that the 41-year-old farmer's wife had to be responsible for her husband's death. So Richard had suffered from chronic lung disease, which, you know, was probably tuberculosis. But because he complained of stomach pain and vomiting before his death, and because Sarah was his wife, authorities ordered an autopsy. And that autopsy did indeed reveal that he had tuberculosis, which may or may not have been hastened by arsenic poisoning, because there was a scant amount of arsenic in his stomach. And so Sarah was arrested again. And although she had been cleared on all of those previous charges, the acquittals from her first three trials were not well received in the local community, sort of as we've been saying. And in 1850, she was brought back into court. And technically, this was now her fourth, four trials. So during this fourth trial, it was reported that Sarah cared for Richard during his illness. That is not that unusual. At all. She was his wife. Okay. And she fed him milk that was thickened with rice and apparently had a strict rule that no one else was to bring him food. As in her previous trials, they brought Dr. Taylor back in to analyze the evidence here as well. And he confirmed that there was a trace amount of arsenic in Richard's body, where he found a huge amount of arsenic was actually in the bag of rice that was retrieved from the Chesham home and tested as evidence. So arsenic, just in case you didn't know, is a naturally occurring thing in rice. Right. (laughs) You know, you rinse your rice. uh, It's not supposed to be huge amounts of arsenic in your rice, but it does naturally occur. So, Right. We don't know if that huge amount is like, if it is a 30-pound bag of rice and you go, I found X amount of arsenic, but no one's going to eat the 30 pounds of rice at a time, so it would not be a fatal amount. Or is it a cup? You know? (laughs) Right. Huge is a very variable word at this point. We don't know if they're saying huge in relation to the whole volume or just a huge as in... If I say... I've driven 20,000 miles. You go, wow, that's amazing. And I go, well, over 10 years. Like it's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It is interesting that no one in the court, or at least it's not recorded, um, actually ever asked the question how much should be in rice and how much was in rice. <laughs> so it, it's. It's cited, interestingly, that Taylor noted in his report that there wasn't enough arsenic found in Richard's body to warrant a murder charge. Um, He just sort of noted that the arsenical rice existed. And despite these things, the trial just kept moving forward. Why ask questions? On top of this kind of dicey arsenic evidence, another local woman named Hannah Phillips told the court about conversations she said that she had with Sarah regarding how to get rid of a husband if the need arises, and that those conversations had indicated that it was with arsenic. It was also whispered around the village that Sarah had a reputation for putting a special ingredient into the mincemeat pies that she gave as gifts, and that ingredient was not brandy. 
The prosecution did their best to present her as a disagreeable, angry, and quarrelsome woman. They even had strangers take the stand against her. And appearing as her own defense, Sarah addressed the jury herself, but her statement, which it's said was long and a bit rambling, uh, did not win anyone over. And although she wasn't able to pull together a list of her own witnesses, which would have been in her legal right, she did speak about how the evidence against her was based only on, and we quote her from her trial, spite and revenge. The court, like the town, believed that Sarah had murdered before, and also believed that unless she was executed, there would be, and we again quote, no safety for mankind. The coroner, too, couldn't see any other outcome than execution. No other outcome. Nothing. Just execution. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of court system is this? There was no court of appeal in England in 1851 when Sarah was convicted, um, and she would have had no means of challenging the outcome of her case in any of these instances. So that's a little bit of a downer, and I want to take a break and walk away from it for a second. Uh, When we return, we are going to talk about Sarah's execution and the possible problems with this whole case. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. We're talking about the poison panic that gripped England at the same time as Sarah's trial. Okay, let's take a minute and talk about what life was like in England at this time. So this was kind of the early end of the Victorian age, and economic conditions in England were pretty dreadful. As we talked about earlier, a lot of people were living in really abject poverty. 
There was high unemployment in the 1840s, which led to an alarming public health crisis as the number of child and infant poisonings began to increase, both accidental poisonings and intentional ones. Still, most people, though, who died from arsenic poisoning did so because of accidents or mistakes or long-term exposure to the poison in everyday items such as cosmetics, um, it was a common ingredient, um, or often from contaminated groundwater, which still happens today. Most people who died from arsenic poison weren't murdered, but that didn't prevent growing social unease about arsenic in 19th century England. The country became gripped in a poison panic. Sarah was hardly alone as an accused. Between 1840 and 1850, as many as 240 individuals were charged with murder or attempted murder by poisoning, right or wrong. National hysteria surrounding poisonings was growing, and Sarah's trials caught the public's interest. They just, they got swept up in this. The Times newspaper commented that Sarah was, quote, an accepted and reputed murderess who walked abroad in the village unchallenged and unaccused. We don't really need to say it, but this was a time when journalistic standards were a little different. <laughs> Very different. And if they had clickbait back then, these headlines would have been for that. We talk about that as a modern thing, but I really do feel like Victoria, the Victorian age news industry was the, the origin point of clickbait. Absolutely. It's just a little bit different form. So they also went on to say in these articles that Sarah just did not have the kind of disposition that a mother should have toward her child. And thus she was nicknamed Sally Arsenic. So during the years that Sarah was allegedly poisoning three children and a husband, the Times published 132 articles about poisoning crimes in the UK. So that's just a couple of years if we compress it down. So around this time period as well, there were about 500 to 600 people who died from being poisoned each year in those years. So we don't really know what the breakdown was of how many of the poisoners were women and how many were men. But what we do know when we, about this press was that they ran 73 articles about women who were on trial for poisoning crimes and only covered 59 men who were accused of the very same crimes. What I what I uncovered when I was doing this research um, was there's not a lot of numbers. There's numbers of deaths, but there's not a lot of numbers of trials. Um, but if you were a female and you were accused of a crime, you were immediately more interested. <laughs> and while it might be an indication that women were more likely to poison in Victorian England, their editorial calendar may also simply reflect that stories about female criminals, as Maria just suggested, were more sensational and would draw more readers than those of males. Like we said, kind of like clickbait, but 19th century style. Right. So let's get back to Sarah's trial. Sarah was convicted in, in her fourth trial, uh, a single count of administering poison with intent. And it's that statement rather than murder because Dr. Taylor didn't find enough arsenic to prove fatal in Richard's body. She was sentenced to death by hanging. Um, it's reported also that thousands of people came to watch her public execution and possibly as many as 10,000 people in March of 1851. I have to say, though, if that number is true, and wow, does it feel high, <laughs> like, I mean, particularly considering how small their village was. There were a thousand people who lived there and most of them were under the age of 20. Where did these 10,000 people came from? 
I mean, it's more people than can legally fit in the Miami Beach Convention Center. So <laughs> I'm not sure if they were bussing them in. <laughs> you think? You think? A little exaggerated. There was actually an illustrated verse recounting Sarah's final moments that was distributed among the spectators. One stanza read like this. Wicked, base, deceitful wife, barbarous and cruel mother, doomed to die in the prime of life. Poor Sarah. She was the last woman to be executed for attempted murder in England. So as we have just uncovered, there was a lot of gossip and only a little bit of evidence in each of Sarah's trials. So was she just hanged as a result of hearsay and rumor? Although she was convicted of a single count of attempted murder, the public believed that she was responsible for more than that. And maybe also for teaching other women how to kill with arsenic in a deadly poison ring in her small town. There was no proof of that, but that didn't really matter. <laughs> Oof. Sarah's trials sparked a moral panic about poison. And this is kind of the, the interesting and important thing about her going on trial for four times. Up until 1851, arsenic was really cheap and it was really easily available around England. You know, like a small town, you would have found it there too. And although its intended uses were for things like killing rodents and surprisingly treating acne, uh, it quickly became known for its off-label uses such as killing family members. And it was often for inheritance. And again, it was also a thing to be talked about because it's very sensational. Who doesn't love a little drama? Very. Victorian England was like the era of the drama llama. I think we all know. And this, this whole set of trials fits right in. <laughs> yep. So the London Medical Gazette at the time reported that with just two pence, you could buy enough arsenic to kill about 100 people. Two pence is the equivalent of two and a half cents in today's dollars. So uh, for, you know, 100 bucks, you could kill those 10,000 spectators. Right. <laughs> Alleged spectators. <laughs> you could at least kill everybody in your town. So Sarah's trial was one of several, actually, at this time that caught the attention of both the media, as well as Parliament. And in early 1851, the Earl of Carlisle introduced the Sale of Arsenic Regulation Bill. And this bill put a few rules into effect. There had been no poison rules before. And it broke down like this. So first, it required arsenic suppliers to keep a register of names of people who bought the poison, as well as the amount they purchased and their reason for buying it. And they had to provide a signature. Second... There were no restrictions on who could sell arsenic, even under the bill. But now, sellers were only legally allowed to sell it to people whom they already knew. And third, arsenic, which we have talked about before, in its natural state after it's been processed, is white. And it often resembled sugar. And so at this point, it had to be dyed with indigo or soot before it could be sold in individual packets. No more mistaking it for a household sweetener. So this bill was intended to address the growing public concern over both accidental and deliberate arsenic poisonings. And it was actually in place until it was repealed, replaced with the Pharmacy and Poisons Act of 1933. So quite a long time. Because of the way investigations and trials are conducted today, it can sometimes seem easier for us to look back on the past and cry, you know, injustice, Sarah had four trials and they, they didn't know what they were doing and we just cry everything was wrong. But there really does to seem to be evidence in Sarah's case that things could have been done better. There wasn't a lot of evidence against her, and her one-sided trial surrounding the death of her husband 
found trace amounts of a poison that often doesn't have to do with being poisoned. Uh, so a conviction based on hearsay from locals, including bogus and uninvestigated stories like one that we found, which was Sarah kept a stash of arsenic in a tree stump outside her house. It, it's hard to see her execution as a fine practice of law. So that said, there is an interesting twist to Sarah's story that we actually did not know about when we originally chose her for this season. I love this. Yes. Recently, Rosalind Powell, a descendant of Sarah, approached the producers of BBC One's show Murder, Mystery, and My Family and asked for help in re-examining the circumstances of Sarah's case. So it's been more than 160 years since her execution. And with new eyes on the evidence, investigators from that team found that the tests carried out at the time of Sarah's trial were actually pretty inconclusive, uh, citing that today we now know that it's not unusual to find small traces of arsenic in a human body, like what was found in Richard's body. Sarah's alleged victims, the barristers and judge determined, uh, there were two barristers and a retired judge who, who were the investigators, had likely died from natural causes like cholera and tuberculosis, like we expected. Ultimately, Sarah's family did get an unsafe verdict, and that means the original guilty verdict should be overturned. And while this isn't a binding judgment, it has inspired her family to continue to pursue her case and get her name cleared permanently. It's really exciting. You know, I mean, the, it is. The, guy, the, the retired judge. And the two barristers, you know, the retired judge who came down with this, he was like, I, I realized that, you know, I can't just make a proclamation right now and say that, you know, let's overturn it. But I think everybody's hoping that the evidence and the sort of, you know, off record trial will really help her family in this manner. I hope so. It's one of those ways, one of the things that I, I love about studying history is that we think of it as settled business that happened in the past, but history is alive and it's yeah. affecting people today and it can still shift and what we understand of the past can still change. So this is a prime example of that. Absolutely. You know, ultimately, with that in mind, and you look back at her story, it, it she just wish she'd just moved to a different town. <laughs> Right. <laughs> just just move to just, London. Just maybe the town next door. Like the, the people in this village are terrible. Just try again. Try again. So with that in mind, what did you come up for for our uh, cocktail this week, Holly? So this What's Your Poison is brought to you by my desire to sweeten Sarah's story. Ah, oh, yeah. So I started to look at, I wanted to come up with a cocktail that was uh, sort of pretty and lovely and I searched around on the internet for some ideas and uh, the cocktail that kept coming up that I thought was most interesting to me was the arsenic and old lace which is a, an existing cocktail that a lot of people make um, you'll find different variations on the recipe obviously that um, that play that it is named after is a 20th century play and does not apply to the Victorian era but uh, the arsenicness of it and the there's it's got a very sweet list of ingredients not literal sweet taste but just it's a, a beautiful assortment so it starts with two ounces of gin mm -hmm. one ounce of dry vermouth one ounce of violet liqueur Ooh. Some people will do creme de violette. 
Sometimes you can just get a regular violet liqueur. You can actually make your own violet liqueur. It's not that hard. And then uh, varying degrees, depending on the recipe. All of these amounts shift from recipe to recipe for this cocktail under different different bartenders' versions. Uh, a little spl- anywhere from a splash of absinthe to one and a half ounces. Um, uh, one and a half seems very heavy to me and is a, an outlier, but uh, most of them are like an eighth of an ounce. A tenth of an ounce, half a spoon, a splash. A splash. Uh, and so, normally to make a, a an arsenic and old lace, you would stir all these ingredients with ice and then strain them into a chilled glass, normally like a coupe glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to make it a little bit sweeter and softer. And this is also inspired by the fact that gin is not my natural choice in spirits. It's a little bitey for me. It's not mine either, so I'm curious about where you're headed. I added a spoonful of simple syrup. Oh. And it just softens up the edges of the gin a little bit and makes it a little more palatable. Now, I will say my husband said it tasted like children's Robitussin. (laughs) Um, But But again, keep in mind, I always have to caveat that he is not a drinker and doesn't really like the taste of any alcohol. So, um you know, he's he's definitely one of those people that I would say 80% of drinks he goes tastes like medicine. So keep that in mind. Noted. But it is, it was a really, it's a nice, um, the, I'm always a fan of any floral liqueur. Yeah. I just love them. I like to use them in everything. I love to make a rose liqueur and just keep it on hand. Um, it occurred to me as well, if you, like me, are not a gin person, this mm-hmm. same recipe would be beautiful with vodka. That's good to know. Yeah, that's my thing. I always want, I'm not a bartender. I just, um, I enjoy cocktails and I like learning about them. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I always encourage people is like, there aren't really like rules, you know, don't, don't be foolish and drink too much and please drink responsibly. But like, you can make substitutions and try different stuff. You're right. not going to go to cocktail jail. Like, it's fine. <laughs> this isn't Victorian England. <laughs> 10,000 people are going to come watch you die. <laughs> It's not Victorian England. You're not going to go to cocktail jail. Uh, so yeah, give it a whirl. Any or any variation on it that sounds delightful. I had a I had one with lunch, so I could test it before we recorded. It's delightful. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to uh-huh. to make this, we highly encourage it. Uh, but also, we wanted to thank you once again for spending time with us today and hearing about Sarah's story, which to me has like one of the best denouement of any of the oh, stories we've yeah. talked about so far. And maybe. In the future, too. Like, she just, her ending. It was a pretty good one. It's really pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Uh, If you would like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do so. We would love for that to happen. So you can get Criminalia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 